When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be speaking to Dr. Kristen Essen about her book titled Working Backstage, A Cultural History and Ethnography of Technical Theatre Labour, published in 2021 by the University of Michigan Press. This is a really interesting book to me on a number of levels. First off, the obvious thing. The book illuminates the work of New York City's theatre technicians, so really exploring the people that audience members don't normally see, the people that are in lighting boxes and behind the scenes, um, but who quite obviously are deeply necessary to actually get Broadway shows anywhere near fully done and ready for audiences. Um, The book also doesn't just tell these stories, it also sort of interrogates them in some ways and looks at um, labour conditions, looks at kind of gender relations, looks at this population and history um, through a lot of different lenses. So not just illuminating kind of, oh, look, these people exist, but really having conversations and thoughts about um, kind of all the things about this population. So Kristen, I'm so excited to welcome you to the podcast to tell us about this amazing book. Thank you, Miranda. I'm excited to be here. Can you start us off, please, by introducing yourself a bit and explaining why you decided to write this book? Absolutely. Um, So I grew up in East Tennessee, um, which was a very fairly rural area, um, and I had very little theater experience until I went to college, and I just immediately took to um, working backstage, and I sort of teamed up with a number of men in my theater program who wanted to teach me lighting. Um, I may or may not have been dating one of them at a time. Uh, And I just learned so much and I found so much gratification at all of this technical expertise that I hadn't been introduced to before because it was assumed um, as a girl that I wouldn't be interested. Um, So I found so much satisfaction in this and I became a technician professionally and I learned fairly quickly that I wouldn't move forward in the profession um, as fast as many of my male colleagues. And I started to get frustrated at having to constantly um, prove my worth um, when my skills really should have done the talking. Right. It was it was clear that I knew what I was doing, but I wasn't being promoted in the same way. And so I went back to uh, graduate school and eventually got my Ph.D. And I realized that by talking to other technicians, that they could help me tell that story and find a language for that satisfaction that I felt, but that I didn't really have a language to explain at that moment. So um, as a historian, I, was, I found a lot of um, excitement and interest in thinking about how do I write this history of something in which there are very few artifacts. 
and excitement and thinking part of part of the work of this project will be in creating those artifacts and doing um, a fair bit of ethnographic work and talking to people um, and learning where they got their skills and learning how that goes back uh, genealogically um, and just sort of pull, pulling that together in a story. Um, Thank you for that introduction. That was lovely. I think um, the way this book works as a history is definitely not a chronology. Um, and a lot of that comes from finding the stories that exist and having to weave them together because there are so few artifacts for this invisible labor um, that is done that people assume um, people aren't interested in. And so those artifacts don't get saved in the same way as the press clippings of actors um, or uh, newspaper uh, uh, journalists writing uh, critiques um, about the shows themselves. So, gosh, I, I went a long way in that one introduction, but that's <laughs> <laughs> no, that's wonderful. That's, um, that's sort of where that's where I get started is uh, personal experience, and of course, a, a politics um, of labor um, and of growing up and of being pro labor um, and wanting to tell this story of workers. See, that's brilliant. You've already shown us a number of the threads that you weave together um, in the book just in that first answer. So that gets us right into it, which is perfect. Um, and I hope that we're going to pick up some of those threads, at least in the interview, though I will say to listeners um, that there are some really amazing details and stories of particular people in the book that we're probably not going to fully get into just in the interests of a broad scope of everything. Um, so listeners do note that in the book itself, there are some pretty amazing profiles of like a pair of brothers and how they get into the industry and things like that. Um but we'll see kind of what kind of highlight story we can do of the book overall. Um, and so to start us off, there's kind of an obvious foundational question that we should probably cover, which is that the book primarily focuses on the union uh, Ayatsi. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, I-A-T-S-E for anyone who likes to spell things out. Um, this is pretty foundational to the book um, and offers a really useful lens to look at the different kinds of specialties and skills and the kind of politics of labor, as you mentioned. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about why the book is focused um, on this union. Um, yeah, what, what what kind of drove your decision? Sure. So the the acronym IATSE is um, the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees. And it is a broad union um, that covers a number of different locals um, it's well, the IATSE is the alliance, and then each local constitutes its own union. And I primarily focus on uh, locals that work within the New York City jurisdiction because I spend a lot of time on Broadway um, and the most time on Broadway musicals. And the unions, um, people who join the unions are primarily working commercial contracts. So, uh, and uh, larger institutions like the Metropolitan Opera or uh, Carnegie Hall, um, so larger and then also commercial institutions. Uh, Radio City Music Hall, for example, they have a contract with. So, Local one of IATSE, and this they call it the mother union, um, was the very first union developed for stagehands um, who came together in the late 19th century um, and who had faced any number of really hard conditions. Um, a number of stagehands, if a show fell apart, they would get just stranded on the road. Um, safety conditions backstage. Um, so there was this real need for the workers to come together. And so Local One was the beginning of this, and it was primarily the stagehands, um, which include now uh, carpenters, 
electricians, uh, sound technicians, and props artisans. So all of those fall under um, this one local one union of IOTSE. And uh, I also look at local 764, um, who are the wardrobe crews. Um, again, not um, there are different IOTSE locals for the shops, the people who are making the costumes, who are making the scenery, um, who may be in New York and who may be in New Jersey or Connecticut, or it's a big wide system. Um, but I am primarily focusing on the people who are working in the, the Broadway venues. Um, or for example, I look at the Apollo Theater in Harlem, um, but in that New York area. And um, and then I also look at, at hairdressers and makeup artists in local 798. So these are the primary unions that I am looking at. And they function to, like any other union, uh, uh, bring people into a profession and make sure that it's a career that, that they can sustain a living wage, um, that they can have secure benefits, that they can have a pension, um, that they can uh, raise a family. Um, so that's, that's primarily IOTSE. And again, it, it, there are uh, locals that extend across the United States, but I primarily just focus in on New York City. Mm. Thank you for explaining that. Um, I think that that's a really uh, kind of interesting lens, right? The, the two different locals in particular that they kind of focus on different aspects, different skills, I suppose. But then of course, these are people working in the exact same theaters, you know, next to each other. Um, right. And I, um, one of the reasons why I focus in so much on IATSE in this book is that the union um because its function is to support stagehands, have produced the most documents that tell the history of backstage labor. So to, uh, when I decided I was going to, like, I guess I hadn't quite decided I was going to write the book. I was still in the process of writing my first book, which was um, about uh, scenic designers. And occasionally I ran across these pieces of evidence that were focused more on the backstage labor. And I found them incredibly interesting because it connected to the work that I had found so gratifying, but I primarily set them aside and they started to accumulate. And I thought, well, now how would someone go about writing this story of primarily invisible labor? And I went to, I, uh, when I was in New York for one of my research trips, um, I went to the, the Lincoln Center Library, uh, which is part of the New York uh, public library system. And a collection had just been cataloged two months before that a stagehand had donated a number of his materials. And he had been on this committee that had written a history for the 100th anniversary of the union. And he had all of these papers and the research that he had um, involved himself in, and that's what he donated. And then I very luckily found that collection just as it had been cataloged. It had been there for 12 years. Um, and so that became my first uh, big sort of chunk of information that I could uh, you know, take a bite of to begin to think about how to write this history. Mm, it's always amazing when you find um, kind of unexpected archives or materials. Um, absolutely, absolutely. And when I finally got into Local One um, and made some connections there and then got into their materials, um, their materials were uncatalogued. <laughs> they were um, quite ah, literally sort luck. of like <laughs> a group of boxes in a back room that had just been accumulating. Um, so to get access to those was um, wonderful, but also just a very different kind of uh, search that I had to go through. Yes. Um, finding an archive is a wonderful thing. Finding a cataloged archive is a whole extra level of wonder. Um, and finding an archive that's not been cataloged is exciting. 
exciting. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that definitely adds an extra layer of accomplishment to have wrangled all of that into a book um, and to have extracted so many really interesting things from it that I think we'll probably now start to talk about. Um, so first off, the kind of obvious chronological question, how do people come to join Yahtzee? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, they come from many different paths. Um, there are three different official ways of joining one of the IATSE unions. And the first one is by a process which is called earning your money. Uh, well, that's that's what they call it colloquial. Uh, and it's uh, sort of making the organizational list. But if for three years you meet the, the, the monetary threshold that they set, um, if you make $40,000, a year for three years continuously, then you get put on the list to join the union. Um, it's it's a recognition that you have proven yourself, that you have made inroads into the profession, um, and have gained contracts. So that's uh, and that's primarily the road that um, any number of um, people who have family members who are in the union, right? So for a very long time, Local One was considered a family union. It was very tough to get in because getting jobs is about knowing people in the industry. And if you have a father, an uncle, um, a brother in the union, then you're much more likely to be able to gain those contracts. But I interviewed a number of uh, stagehands, particularly, who called themselves orphans, that they succeeded in the union despite not having family. And they typically do that by a- attaching themselves uh, to a family. Uh, so, for example, I, I interviewed um, this one electrician, uh, Brad Robertson, who's become incredibly successful um, doing productions uh for Disney theatricals. He's now the house electrician at the Belasco Theater. Um, And he worked a lot with the Maloney family who had been in the union for three generations. Um, And so finding a network of people and then being able to be hired uh, into that local's work is one way. Uh, to become part of the union. You can also gain membership uh, through an apprenticeship program. So people, the the union publishes every two years or so the date and time for an apprentice test that people come and take the test and the top 40 scores will then be put on a list to become apprentices at uh, local one sponsored um, shops or venues. And whenever a position comes up, the next person on the list then goes to um, that venue. Um, And for two years, they work as an apprentice and get to know the profession um, and and learn from the journeyman within that venue um, and then become a member. And a lot of women have gained access uh, to Local One membership through that apprenticeship. The third way is to join through an organizational effort. So if your venue gets organized into the union. So for example, the uh, original stagehands at the Apollo Theater became members of Local One when they they had a strike uh, against the Apollo Theater and um, had Local One as their negotiating agent and eventually um, signed a union contract with the Apollo. And so all of the stagehands that worked for the Apollo then became part of that union. And people come from all different um, experiences. Some people come with a college education. Uh, They Uh, worked in theater departments and gained skills in that way. Uh, Some people um, come uh, straight from high school, particularly if they have family members that are within the union. 
a lot of people who join the wardrobe union often come from a background working in costume shops. Um, it's, it's almost rare that somebody sort of starts out wanting to be in wardrobe. They usually find it through a back door because it's not a job that is particularly visible or known about outside the industry. People go, oh gosh, so actors can't just dress themselves. Um, well, when they have 30 seconds to make a costume change, yes, they need help for that. And they need somebody who is skilled and knows exactly what they're doing um, in the dark <laughs> when they do that. So yeah, people come from all different backgrounds and it takes a certain kind of person who's, uh, who's willing to gain those skills to create that network of connections and who is willing to work uh, in the gig economy, who's willing to work contract by contract. A lot of the people that work in IOTSI, they go straight from one contract to the next because they never know when, right, they might not get the next job. So a lot of them just work incredibly hard and take very few vacations. Um, because they they continue to sort of follow the the tide, um, and a, a number of them were out of work for two years uh, this past uh, uh, during the pandemic, and are now really tr working uh, trying to catch up. Um, I just recently spoke with a, a hairdresser who works on Hades Town, and he had worked just this incredibly long week where he was working both uh, film and television during the day and then doing his call at Hades Town at night um, and really barely sleeping. Um, and he said, yeah, paying off the pandemic is just, it's incredibly pricey. So <laughs> they work incredibly hard and long hours. Um, and it's such a tight knit community that they still love what they do and the people that they do it with. I, I would love to um, sort of poke at one of the things you mentioned, and you talk obviously more um, in the book about it, but in you, we've already mentioned a little bit about how Local One kind of has um, certain groups of skill sets sort of represented, and then Local uh, 798, is it? Um, uh, yes, 798 is the hairdressers yeah. and so that has, makeup artists. Right, so sort of different, um, you know, different skills, obviously. Mm -hmm. and. Mm -hmm. Can you help us understand a little bit? Um, you kind of mentioned it a little bit with dressers, um, but why do dressers, hairstylists, makeup artists, often in Local 798, kind of that category, have more varied pathways into Broadway than perhaps people in the Local 1 category? Absolutely. It's, it's, it's about it being a patriarchal system. Uh, it's about Local 1 being... Um, it's about stagehands primarily historically conventionally being men and doing these activities, uh, carpentry, electrics that are conventionally marked as uh, a masculine type work. And the workers in 764, um, who are the dressers, also the guardians who all uh, hopefully we'll talk about because they're also members of 764 and were added uh, only just very recently. And then the the makeup and hair artist in 798, um, it's still considered a kind of woman's work, and they get paid significantly less still today uh, than their um, compatriots in Local One. Um, so the pathways in Local One are set, right? That they are there's there's historical precedent. Uh, for the ways that you uh, move into that union. And in fact, uh, the apprenticeship that I talked about, it's only fairly recent that people look at this apprenticeship process as a legitimate process of joining Local One um, because it's, it's not as reliant on that uh, set network um, that we would call nepotism in almost any um, industry. Well, so, the, the old boys network, literally. 
All boys network, absolutely. And and um and and old white boys network, if we're being accurate, right? So so finding a way into that network um has been right, the work of a number of different generations um of of women and people of color. And the unions, I'd say in the last five years, really, have been incredibly responsive as they realize the, uh, uh, they realize how difficult that it's been and they're making significant strides. Um, but again, that's only been fairly recent. Um, I'd say internally, membership has really worked the longest and the hardest to diversify. So um, women have long had allies in the profession, um, and but the union itself really has put a lot more resources and emphasis in it in the past couple of years. But going back to, to your question, um, it's just that there's not the same um, noticeable pathway into 764 or 798. Um, and knowing that those positions are even available can be a challenge because again, because people don't know what it is that a dresser does or um, the skills needed for somebody who is um, making and securing wigs. Um, or the different skills between wigs and natural hair. Um, so, so people will, for example, uh, uh, hairstylists will have salon training. And then even though they're working on hair, right, if they get um, access to an entertainment gig, suddenly they're like, oh, right, I'm doing hair. But it's not that I'm serving a client and producing the look that they want themselves, uh, but that I am recreating a, a design um, that someone has set and that it goes out the same way each night. So it's it's similar tools and skills, um, but just accessed and then performed in a different way. Hmm. Thank you for explaining that. Um, and I think it goes back to what I was saying in the very beginning of kind of the multiple lenses and aspects of this that you pick apart in the book. Um, and so I'd love to kind of continue with that, with um, the aspect that you've just mentioned. And this kind of goes to the um, new or recent sort of push within Ayatsi, and that is, of course, Guardians. So can you tell us about how Guardians became part of the union and sort of why it took so long? You know, why did this happen so recently? Yeah, so the, the guardians who are the backstage professionals who take care of the child actors and help organize their workday um, because they are underage, they only joined um, 764 in 2012. Um, there had been a push earlier to try to join Actors' Equity, which is the union that serves both actors and stage managers, because they work the work that they do um, is often similar to the work that stage managers do in terms of um, organizing schedules and being there at rehearsals to um, take notes on blocking for the child actor and helping them learn their lines and learn their choreography. Um, primarily, it took so long uh, because there are so few guardians on each production and because they're not on every production. So on a production like Matilda, uh, which came over um, from the UK, uh, and there are so many child actors and, and more than you see on stage because you have to have multiple casts because the children can't work the full work week that an adult can. So you have multiple uh, Matildas. You have three Matildas in uh, a cast and then you have uh, 
a couple of different uh, actors that can play different roles um, and that can swing into the ensemble. So it's a, it's a very large. And so they had for Matilda four guardians and to join, to make a push, an organizational push, um, you have to have more than two people. You have to have at least three people. And so organizing guardians uh, became really difficult because it was such a small group of professionals. And at the time that they organized, uh, Matilda was running as well as School of Rock. So there were a number of, I think they had 12 originally um, who came in and organized. And um, the person who made the primary push, uh, Bobby Wilson, who I talk about in the book, um, had a long history on Broadway um, and had made a number of friends uh, during the stagehand strike in 2008 and they had said to him you know thank you for standing up for us he he walked the line with them um and they said you know let us know let us know how we can help um because the well when i talked with the president of 764 who they brought in the child guardians um pat white she said you know we we are stronger when all of our employees are unionized. Um, and so they needed a place to go and the wardrobe union brought them in. So it was a numbers game for a while and trying to get an accumulated number of people who could do that. Um, and it was a profession that people didn't look at as skilled labor. It is uh, another reason why it took so long. People saw what they did as uh, babysitting. That's the term that 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 really grates um, to the child guardians because they're professionals that know about theater and can help the the child actor um, in. Basically, they help the child actor be part of this professional organization, and they take over where the adult actor would take responsibility for things, if that makes sense. Um, and they help them be part of that full cast. So it's, um, it's again, it, you'd put it in that same category as not being recognized because it's a kind of woman's work, um, uh, taking care of the children. But they do incredibly important things uh, backstage they're always there backstage as a child actor goes on stage or off stage. Um, and there's a lot of things happening backstage with some very large pieces of scenery. And so they're there to keep the child actor safe and to make sure that they have everything they need to succeed. Yeah, not, not a small job. Um. <laughs> No. And so it makes sense um, that that eventually kind of gets recognized as a skilled thing along with um, some other things. But it also speaks to, and this has now come up a few times, um, the ideas of kind of miscommunication or biases or gaps in understanding um, really impacting what so many of these backstage technicians are kind of able to do, how they feel about their work and able to explain it to people. Um, and of course, that's not just within the industry, you know, that's not just kind of other backstage technicians going, oh, you're just a babysitter. Um, a lot of this is hugely informed, even in the beginning of the book, you talk about um, the kind of the fact we don't even know about these. And you said at the beginning of the interview, you know, the lack of artifacts. Um, and a bunch of that comes down as well to media biases, right? There are press clippings of the actors, <laughs> you know, what the media chooses to focus on helps create the artifacts and the gaps. And I was so glad in the book that you kind of investigated this. So this is one of the things you looked into. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about kind of the main types of media biases that you found against particularly local one stagehands um, and help us understand kind of where do you think those are coming from? Right. Well, uh, once I had found that one collection of papers at the New York Public Library, uh, 
I uh, got a grant to go back. And part of the time that I spent there looking at those papers, I also looked at the clippings. Uh, the New York Library does a great job of pulling clippings for um, for the theater in New York. And uh, it's a very small subset, but there are a couple of folders on stagehands and particularly on um, on the union and and on the strike um, that happened. And so I started going through all of those clippings and there this media bias, right? This something that I certainly had intuited uh, from my own professional career that there's this sense of, uh, oh, well, you know, a, a local one stagehands, they come in because their dads have done it and they don't really care about theater. They're just there getting a paycheck. Um, they, they, they do the littlest amount of work possible to get the paycheck. They don't care. As opposed to the stagehands off-Broadway who really do care because they're doing it for the love because they don't get paid that much money. So <laughs> there's this, like, I, I, I started pushing against that narrative because once you don't get paid enough for a number of years you're like you know do I love this profession as much as I thought I did and shouldn't this profession love me back such that I can sustain you know just a a, a career so and and it was it was I, I can't say gratifying is the right word but it was certainly um enlightening to run across these clippings that go back to the 1930s in which the New York press are putting out these stereotypes um, that I still recognized as things that I had heard about Local One and uh, of stagehands during the Depression who are pushing against the producers who are saying, um, legitimately, right? Like we, we have to cut costs or we're going to have to shut down our show. And then um, the New York papers take that as the stagehands are trying to shut down Broadway at a time when going to see the show is one of the few happy things we can do in New York. Um, and it's like, okay, okay, hold on just a minute. Like it's only the stagehands or it's just that the public doesn't have any kind of empathetic connection to the stagehands because they're not on stage, because we don't see the work that they do. We see the actor on stage and they look fantastic and they're wearing this gorgeous costume um, and they have on these fantastic tap shoes that, you know, uh, beat their way into our hearts, but we don't see the person backstage helping put on those tap shoes or that costume, and then the next costume change, or we don't see um, the person who's pulling the rope uh, so that the next backdrop comes down so that they can move to the next location. So they become an easy target. And anytime uh, I found that there was a regularity to when these when the press would talk about stagehands, and again, they would talk about them way less than performers, producers, directors, um, but when they did talk about stagehands, it came every three years when the contract was up um, between IOTSE and the Broadway League. And each time there would start to be these uh, messages, right, or, or these um, uh, uh, stories in the press about why are the stagehands trying to uh, ruin Broadway and close all these shows. And uh, that it really became a, a kind of spectacle of that during the strike um, in 2008 when it happened right before the holiday season. And there were pictures of children who were waiting in line to see 
what was then the Little Mermaid uh, opening on Broadway and just tears streaming down their face because the stagehands had shut down um, Broadway or uh, the Grinch. Uh, they had all gone to see the Grinch um, and, and it closed down. And there was a picture of uh, the president of Local One uh, with a with the face of the Grinch behind him and and looking at the stagehands is why why couldn't you just take less money uh, so those of us could, who who just need a little bit of Christmas spirit can go and see this Broadway show um, so yeah so it it was it was just a a, a constant sort of like every three years um, you'd start to see the stagehands in the press when these contracts came came up fascinating um and especially to trace something so clearly kind of the same thread from across so many different decades um really interesting and of course as a historian like that's what you hope to find in the archive um (laughs) so really interesting uh to see that particular example thank you for sharing it with us um i'd like to move on to another section of the book where you reconstruct the backstage labor of three musicals um, and really kind of go into depth to illuminate the work that's being done that the audience can't see um, and to make some really interesting arguments about it. Um, But before we kind of get to those arguments, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about kind of um, maybe a little bit about why you decided to reconstruct them, but then mainly kind of how did you choose which musicals to focus on? Because um, case selection is always difficult, but if you're choosing only three Broadway musicals from essentially the entire history of Broadway, that's not an easy task. So how did you end up with A Chorus Line, The Lion King, and Matilda? Uh, well, I do uh, Chorus Line Newsies and Matilda. Um, uh, my apologies. But, you are correct. No, no, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but I did, I did get to sit backstage with uh, one of the spotlight operators of uh, the Lion King, and that was that was an experience in and of itself. But it started with a chorus line, uh, again, because I ran across some uh, papers that had been saved, and not necessarily to. Uh, to document backstage labor, but to document lighting design. So the New York Public Library, again, has been, uh, has some really fantastic archivists. And uh, one in particular, Doug Reside, has done a lot of work in thinking about how to document lighting design, because it is such an ephemeral kind of artistry. And uh, they had uh, a lighting designer, Theron Musser, um, who was uh, really famous on Broadway. And she, uh, her partner um, had donated her papers. And amongst the papers of a chorus line were all of the kind of uh, technical paperwork. So this was the first Broadway production to to use a computerized lighting board. Before that, all of the lighting had been these uh, resistance dimmers um, that, I don't, you know, four different uh, electricians would would constantly be have this choreograph of moving the various dimmers um, to create the lighting effects and. When a chorus line was developed, it was developed downtown at the public theater. Um, so it was developed off Broadway um, with Joseph Papp giving uh, Michael Bennett, you know, a sort of space and $100 per person per week to say, yeah, develop this musical about this group of workers who um, people don't know anything about, which, which were the dancers in the background. Um, seen but also unseen because they're sort of the backdrop to the uh, the star on stage. And so 
a chorus line is written about these background dancers. And it was done at the public theater where they had a computerized life board um, and they didn't have one on Broadway. And so Theron Muster said, as they were moving it uh, from the public to Broadway, uh, I need I need this technology. There's no way for me to recreate this lighting design using those old fashioned piano boards. And so, because a chorus line everyone knew was going to make a ton of money, uh, they brought in this computerized lighting board. I th there's a story. Some people say it's true. Some people say it's not. That she that she said, okay, electricians, if you don't want to uh, use a computerized lighting board, try to recreate this cue using these piano boards. Um, and they tried and they couldn't. Um, so anyway, so so that was sort of. Uh, why it became so historic in terms of lighting. And so Theron Musser donated all of this paperwork. Um, and amongst the paperwork, like, right, uh, was the cue sheets for the follow spot operators about who they were spotlighting at which time, what were the fades up, what were the fades down. And they were really complex. And um, running a follow spot had been my absolute favorite thing that I did when I was a theater electrician. Um, I always felt so proficient at what I was doing, and I felt like an integral part of what was happening on stage. Um, I, I had run the follow spot for this production of uh, George M., and I was the spotlight for the lead. And I remember thinking like, I can move, like he's so good at staying in his light that I have the power to move him anywhere. Like he would find the center of his light all the time. And it, it just felt like this connection. And so I looked at those follow spot sheets and I thought, I'm one of the few people who can take this sheet of paper and write about it in a way that makes this work that makes this artistry and work creating the artistry visible. So I started working with those follow spot sheets and I pulled out the libretto of a chorus line and I just started piecing it together. And then I started calling people to try to get some interviews. Um, and I talked with Natasha Katz who recreated Theron Musser's lighting design for the revival of a chorus line in 2014. And then I started finding some of the electricians who weren't the original uh, follow spot operators on the show, but who, because the show just ran and it ran, it ran. It opened in the 70s and ran into the 90s. And so a lot of people ran those follow spots. And I started talking to them um, and how intricate that work had been. And so it was really the first, uh, my first opportunity of thinking, wow, I can really take something so technical and create a story and show what, what is essentially a kind of choreography of backstage labor. And I can connect it to what is happening on stage. So it becomes incredibly visible to somebody who is reading a history. And it's a way that they've never looked at a chorus line before, that this is a perspective that tells the story, that enriches the history of a chorus line, but from a different perspective. So it only adds to what people know about a chorus line. And so that became my lead case study for this um, sort of methodology that I was kind of making up um, in terms of connecting um, the libretto to the technical paperwork and choosing Newsies and Matilda after that became a pretty easy task because these were the contemporary shows that I gained more backstage paperwork that allowed me to follow the same type of choreographic movements. So um, I had a, a, a friend who worked as the dramaturg at Disney Theatricals, Ken Cernelia, 
and he got me connected in with the crew at Newsies. And so I got to sit in the follow spot booth uh, for one of the performances um, and they gave me copies of their paperwork so that I was able to do that for Newsies as well. And also what I found with Newsies was there was a similar kind of meta theatrical story um, that was being told um, that allowed, in the same way that I connected a chorus line, that the, the dancers on stage who wanted a job with the electricians backstage who were proud of what they were doing in their job. With Newsies, I could connect this brotherhood of union um, technicians in the booth to the brotherhood of union paper sellers on stage. Um, so it was a way of just uh, of trying to tell a story across on stage and backstage. And then the paperwork that Bobby Wilson gave me for the guardians um, and the way that they moved about the stage with the child actors, again, was, was a, a story that I could tell and align those two spaces. So it, it was, um, I would say it pulled from my background as a technician, but it also pulled from my background um, having done dramaturgy, um, having having a, a kind of uh, storytelling mindset in thinking about history, um, because that chapter was it, it felt analytical and creative in the way that I started pulling together those stories. Hmm. It was also, as a reader, quite fascinating. So there was that benefit as well. Um, but I want to sort of ask about this sort of position you have of the different sort of lenses and skill sites and experiences that allow you to interpret these pages and to tell the story and that sort of thing. Um, because towards the end of the book, you sort of turn your gaze um, essentially to you or people like you or your colleagues um, in university education. Um, so I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about kind of where you want that to go or what you're hoping your research or your book might influence or impact in sort of that part of the realm of sort of training backstage technicians. So, right, instead of a traditional conclusion, I write this coda in which I start asking questions about uh, technical labor in university theater departments. And so much of the way that a university theater department runs is through the training of students to do the work. And for a, I'd say since I started this research and really started thinking about how the union protects the stagehand, I started asking myself how we as faculty also protect our students or, or who is answering the same ethical questions uh, that a union helps a worker answer in the commercial theater. So are we um, meeting our ethical responsibilities to our students who are often working just incredible hours on student productions. Um, and when we assign them production work as a part of their um, curricular responsibilities, right? So that if, if you were taking a class on um, lighting design and we say, and yes, you're gonna spend eight hours a week doing lighting, are we taking those hours as hours that are uh, part of a classroom or is it just work, right? Is it work that we're just expecting and we're not really translating into a truly educational experience? Because in my experience, um, the work we do with actors on stage, the work we do with student directors, that they have a lot of time to experiment and play around and and make mistakes as they're rehearsing. And then when we go to the backstage work, there's significantly less time to explore, to experiment, to make mistakes. It becomes much more focused on work um, and their students. 
<laughs> right? They're students. And, um, and so I just, I start to think about the ethics of what I learned from um, technicians and how they value unions. And I start asking, um, I mean, it's a, is it a polemic? I don't know. I, I'm pushing on people a little bit. I think a lot of, uh, not a lot of people, but some people are a little prickly uh, when it comes to a historian saying, let me look at what you're doing backstage and ask you a, a number of ethical questions about, is this what you should be doing? Um, so I I do think we're in a, a, a I don't know if it's a unique position in the in theater departments, but we have these spaces in which we are creating theater um, that should be laboratories um, to test the research that we're doing. And so I hope that somebody, and I guess in writing that coda, I am prompting people who read this book to then start asking some of the same questions um, about the way we teach students to think about themselves as workers and to respect uh, the work that they're doing. Interesting. Adds a whole extra kind of lens and way of thinking about this and very much taking history and making it directly relevant to the present and obviously as well the future. So in that vein, for my final question, um, is there anything about what you're currently working on or you're next working on that you'd like to share a little bit about with us? Sure. I mean, I, I, I've touched on it a little bit. There, uh, anytime you're writing a book, there are things that you set aside that you wish you didn't uh, have to set aside. <laughs> so I'm still working on a few strands from the book. And one of them is um, going back to some of the interviews that I had with um, hairstylists. And I am particularly asking questions about the stylists who work on um, natural hair, textured hair, the hair of um, actors of color. And a lot of uh, press, particularly around Hollywood, has set actors and stylists in this adversarial relationship about, you know, why aren't there stylists who have skills to work on um, Black actors' hair? And I'm trying to talk to stylists as a way to amplify some of those concerns and to look at the way in which it becomes uh, much more of a structural problem. Um, so, for example, uh, I think I had mentioned the the stylist from Hades Town that I have been talking to, um, Kevin Garcia, and he's been working with um, the performers who uh, perform the part of Persephone. And the original performer, Amber Gray, when she left. Um, a number of other performers have stepped into the role. And one of them is Jewel Blackman, um, who has a, a very different type of hair texture than Amber Gray did. And traditionally on Broadway, if you have designed a wig or if you have designed a costume, the next person that steps into that role, they make a costume that looks just like the one that was worn originally, or they make a wig that looks just like the one that was worn originally. And Amber Gray and Jewel Blackman, um, they look different and they wear their hair different. And so Kevin Garcia made a new wig for Jewel Blackman that has locks and braids and um, allows her to inhabit that role more as herself than if she had looked like, than if they had put the same type of wig on her that Amber Gray um, had worn. And so that is a case study I'm looking at as something to think about the way in which backstage labor helps us intervene in some of the questions about um, race and representation on the stage in this moment when um, Broadway is really looking at itself and trying to um, make some significant changes 
And they're doing that by looking at producers and directors. And what I'm trying to do with my research is saying, you've got to look all the way through the profession. You have to touch all of the different workers in the industry and um, think about things from the ground up, um, as well as setting things at the top. And talk to the, talk to the people who have the skills. Right. And who are using their time uh, to make these shows happen, who are using their expertise to make these shows happen, um, because they're they're on the ground floor of being able to fix a number of these problems. So that's kind of what I'm working on right now. And it I think it it, it folds into a, a lot of what I have done with with working backstage, because even though I'm primarily talking about technicians, I do a lot of work of trying to align technicians and performers on stage and backstage um, as a collective workforce that um, I try to align some of the uh, the conflict that has been there traditionally between on stage and backstage to say you're not so different in terms of the performance skills that you are using and as a um, as a collective force of workers you have the power to make the kind of substantial changes um, that we want to make. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. Um, It definitely sounds like a fascinating project in its own right and very much a continuation um, of a lot of the work in the book. So best of luck investigating that. Um, But while you are off doing that, um, listeners can read the book that we've been discussing, which again is titled Working Backstage, A Cultural History of and Ethnography of Technical Theatre Labour from the University of Michigan Press in 2021. Dr. Kristen Essen, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. And thank you so much for having me.